1: y yo llegué a ese lugar eh, en agosto de 1977 y ahí vi eh, por primera vez petróleo en las carreteras en la uh-huh. calle en las uh-huh. calles de la de la de la ciudad This is Luis Llanza. He moved to the Oriente area of the Ecuadorian Amazon on the eastern side of the country in the 70s. He says when he stepped off the bus in Lago Agrio, the largest city in the area at the time, the streets were literally filled with oil, that there was oil running down them. That He stepped onto a street of oil. Otra cosa que recuerdo desde esos años es que Um, Yo miraba desde la guardia, desde desde la casa de donde vivíamos, miraba el horizonte siempre nubes negras, Mm. y al principio no sabía qué eran esas nubes negras. Jansa says growing up, he would see big black clouds in the distance, nubes negras. He didn't know what those clouds were from, but he found out later that they were from the oil refineries in the area. Later, he would see pits of oil and wastewater in various parts of the Amazon as well. All of that, the oil streets, the black clouds, the pits. Who created those and whose responsibility it is to clean them up? That's what's at the center of a lawsuit that started in 1993 against one company, Texaco. That suit has lasted through an acquisition, Chevron acquired Texaco in 2000, and multiple trials and settlements and appeals. Aspects of this case have been heard in courtrooms in Ecuador, New York, Canada, Argentina, and The Hague. An American lawyer, Stephen Donziger, you met last time, is on house arrest and facing prison time for his role in the case. Yansa is still working on aspects of the case on the ground in Ecuador and in various other courts around the world. And various indigenous groups are just trying to figure out how they're going to clean this stuff up and get access to clean water. This is Drilled Season 5, La Lucha en la Jungla, Episode 2, The Colonizers. Today we're going to go all the way back and look at how that oil got onto those streets in the first place. That story coming right up after this quick break from today's sponsor. Missing America is the story of what happens when the United States, under Trump, abdicates our role as an example for the world. Ben Rhodes, who served as the Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama, hosts the show and speaks to inspiring leaders and activists who are fighting to take up the slack in America's absence in a world where nationalism, authoritarianism, and disinformation have taken hold like never before. This week, Ben talks to several climate activists, including former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, to ask, can the biggest threat to the entire world bring the entire world together? In their penultimate episode, Ben examines the enormous obstacles to confronting climate change and how progressives in other countries have made headway. Missing America is a nine-part, limited podcast series from Crooked Media. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows. I'm Cal Thomas. I've just been reading about Simone Bolivar. Bolivar, the great patriot of Latin America, fought for the freedom of not just one country, but for the freedom of six Spanish colonies in Latin America.
2: For centuries in their poor and remote villages, most of the people lived quiet lives close to the soil. Then, in the early 1920s, something happened which changed forever the life of the Venezuelan people oil.
1: As you can hear in these vintage oil industry promotional films, oil companies didn't see themselves as colonizers. Colonialism was something Spaniards did. American companies, they brought freedom. Oil colonialism was deeply intertwined with religion, and the situation in Latin America was no different. Missionaries throughout the continent were often funded by oilmen, most intensely from the 1920s through the 1960s. And it wasn't purely cynicism. Men like Lyman Stewart and John D. Rockefeller were extremely devout Christians who believed God had ordained them to find oil and prosper from it. Darren Dochuk, a history professor at the University of Notre Dame, has written several fascinating books on this subject.
3: Not all oil men are (laughs) devout Christian, uh, but many of them are
1: Dochuk says there's a long history of missionaries and oilmen partnering, and it was no different in the Amazon.
3: These missionaries are, are pushing into the jungles of the Amazon. It's no accident that they are coming in direct contact with petroleum geologists, and that they are going to collaborate. They are going to partner in terms of the flow of information
1: these partnerships weren't just bringing religion to the supposedly godless primitive people of the amazon and opening up new land for oil exploration they were also exporting american style democracy throughout the world
3: of course uh, this is all premised on the assumption of a superiority of the modern christian who as ambassador of the american way privileges their knowledge and their expertise and sees it as Again, a God-given way for them to help uplift the world. And that has deeply, of course, racist undertones.
1: As the Cold War began in the late 1940s and continued until 1991, churches and oilmen teamed up again against a common enemy, communism.
3: This pursuit of black gold is going to be all the more intensified uh, against the backdrop of the Cold War and the fight with communism and the fear that Latin America might lose itself to the great secular communist threat of the Soviet Union. So oil and uh, the pursuit of souls is going to become all the more important at that point.
1: People began exploring for oil in Ecuador in the 1920s, but it wasn't until the 1960s... once again, oil men and missionaries teamed up to explore deep into the jungle. In the 1980s, Judith Kimmerling, an environmental lawyer from Alabama, was drawn to Ecuador by that timeless desire of environmentalists everywhere. She wanted to save the rainforests. When she arrived, Kimmerling learned about the exact partnership between oil and religion that Dochuk describes
4: one of the groups the baywaieti they had no contact with the outside world until 1970
1: the baywaieti are a subgroup of a larger tribe called the warani who live throughout the amazon in ecuador
4: They were subjected to a program of forced contact because after Texaco discovered commercial quantities of oil in Lago Agrio, the company knew that it would want to expand its operations into Warani territory.
1: Lago Agrio was the name of the first well Texaco drilled in Ecuador. In the great tradition of American companies exploring overseas, Texaco named that well and the town it built up around it after its own history. Lago Agrio means sour lake, and back when Texaco was just the Texas oil company, it first struck black gold in the tiny sundown town of Sour Lake, Texas. 30 years later, Lago Agrio would be the center of this big legal case we've been talking about. But in the 1970s, there was still more exploring to do. That's where the missionaries came into it.
4: And the Warani who lived in those areas had no contact with the outside world. They were fierce warriors and great hunters. And so the company collaborated with US missionaries to subject the Warani to a forced contact.
1: Kimberly wanted to see for herself what was happening in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And when she first got to Quito, she met an American oil consultant who repeated something she'd read back home.
4: I had read that there was some oil development in Ecuador, but I had read in this literature that oil extraction, oil drilling, exploration, and production does not harm the rainforest, that the only harm is caused by road construction, that oil companies have to build roads uh, in order to lay their pipelines, and that road construction by the oil industry leased to deforestation, and there's, never in, there's no other harm. I had read that without thinking about it, and then after I got to Quito, I met a consultant for an oil company who said the same thing to me, and somehow when he said it, it just didn't sound right.
1: That consultant gave Kimmerling a copy of his company's environmental management practices and its plans for further drilling in the Amazon. She took it to a group called Konfaniye, an organization that represents 1,500 communities in the Amazon.
4: An environmental management plan for Block 16, which is in uh, really important areas of Yasuni National Park and also the territory of the Warani nation, you know, they looked at it and they asked me if they could see it, if they could copy it. And I said, of course. And I think that what made an impression on them was that I was the first person who had ever shared information with them.
1: Kunfani I asked her to come back and then they asked her, okay, so you want to help. What exactly do you want to do? She said she wanted to go out and see what the oil companies were really doing in the rainforest.
4: So I went with Company I. They took me out they, and they took me to Coca, which is an oil boom town. And they introduced me to the local federation and I met with the, with the leaders there and I told them about you know, what I had heard about oil extraction. And I asked them, you know, I said, I have some doubts. Is it true? Is there contamination? And they looked at each other, they looked at me, they had never heard that word before. They did not know what it meant. And so when I explained what the word contamination meant, they understood immediately. And they began to tell me about the oil operations, the routine waste, the spills, and then they took me around to so that I could see for myself. And so I still remember the first waste pit that I saw, the first abandoned waste pit that I saw, it was at an exploratory well site and the company had just dug a hole in the ground, dumped their toxic drilling waste and then abandoned it in the rainforest. And when you abandon toxic waste in the rainforest, uh, some of it seeps into the ground. You also get a lot of rain, so it overflows into the surrounding areas. And I was appalled because when I was a lawyer in New York City, I had worked on the Love Canal litigation. I had worked for the New York State Attorney General's office, uh, suing Occidental Petroleum Company and Occidental Chemical Company to recover the monies that New York State had spent to uh, buy out people's homes and and contain the contamination at Love Canal. And I thought that we had learned in this country from Love Canal that you can't just dig a hole in the ground, dump your toxic waste and walk away. But that is exactly what Texaco was doing, a U.S. company was doing in the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador in the not you know i went there in 1989 and they were still doing it then
1: This practice digging unlined open air waste pits, filling them and just leaving them behind. And the dumping of oil into rivers, what we heard Justino talk about in the last episode. These are the original issues at the center of this decades long case that Chevron ultimately inherited from Texaco and that the Ecuadorians are still trying to settle today. No one really denies that this was done. It's more a question of who did what and whose job it is to clean it up. We actually found a petroleum geologist who worked in Ecuador in the mid-90s who told us what he saw there. Tim Lagonegro.
2: 36 years in the petroleum industry. I've worked or lived in about 70 different countries. I lived 10 years in Latin America, eight in Brazil, two in Ecuador. Going there, I did see these these oil roads where they, the crude oil was It seemed like it was deliberately spilled. I I don't know how it happened, but it seemed like it was also almost waist deep. And it was lush, lush jungle out there.
1: At issue in this case is not whether this happened or even whether Texaco was involved. It's whether they were responsible for more cleanup than they actually did. Texaco's and now Chevron's arguments in this case boil down to two things. First, Texaco cleaned up what the government said it had to, and second, that any remaining issues were the responsibility of the state-run oil company, Petro Ecuador. The plaintiffs say, basically, we don't care who owned what percentage of this partnership, it was Texaco that was operating everything. Texaco showed the Ecuadorians what to do, Texaco showed Petro Ecuador what to do, and they're responsible. My co-reporter on this series, Karen Savage, asked Lago Negro about that.
4: So. Texaco relies in now Chevron
1: on what they call the settlement agreement that was signed. I think it was in ninety eight, where they say they cleaned up thirty seven percent of the unlined waste pits because they said that's the percentage of their share of the consortium. Is that a normal kind of thing where they would only clean up whatever their share is and then leave the rest for Petro Ecuador?
2: I think that's an outlandish statement because what happens is the major runs everything you know i don't want to say they're like you know imperialists or whatever but they definitely go in there with this big boy attitude a lot with these broad shoulders and they're there to do the operations to operate it and usually the national oil company is just an observer they really don't get their hands on the operation. So I think that's an outlandish um, deception there, really and truly. And don't believe that for a second. Number one, you would never put wastewater in an unlined pit, never. Everyone knows that's toxic water. Putting that into a rainforest that is an outlandishly bold-faced, Drilling 101 error. Very extremely wrong, extremely dangerous, doesn't happen. 37%, I think that's outlandish deception really that um, it doesn't work that way.
1: Kimberlyn gives the example of the Trans-Ecuadorian Pipeline, a 313-mile pipeline that runs from the Amazon up over the Andes and to the Pacific Ocean. It was initially built by Texaco in 1972.
4: This pipeline, during the time it was operated by Texaco, this pipeline alone had spilled more oil than the Exxon Valdez. And this doesn't count the secondary pipelines, the flow lines. I mean, most of the spills that occurred during Texaco's operations weren't even recorded. And there's actually a was a directive from Texaco in the U.S. to the office in Quito telling them not to record those spills, uh, basically unless they had to.
1: Both Texaco and Chevron have admitted that Texaco was the operator of the partnership. In other words, setting up oil fields, refineries and pipelines and running them from the beginning in 1964 until at least 1990. They were still in charge when Kimmerling made her initial Save the Rainforest trip. That experience prompted Kimmerling to write the book Amazon Crude, which introduced Americans to what was happening in the Ecuadorian Amazon, including Cristobal Bonifaz, an Ecuadorian who had immigrated to America and was practicing law there. When he read about what was happening back home, Bonifaz convinced his son, who had just graduated from law school, to go on a fact-finding mission with him and see if they might build a case. His son brought his law school pal, a young Stephen Donziger, the attorney we met last time.
0: I was invited by uh, a former law school classmate of mine and his father. His father's from Ecuador but was practicing law in Massachusetts, to go on with them on a trip to Ecuador to do an investigation of what they described as a massive pollution problem caused by Texaco.
1: In 1983, Bonifaz filed suit against Texaco on behalf of a group of indigenous tribes. Here he is at a press conference about the case in New York.
3: What
1: what happened with Texaco didn't have to be that way, he says. He goes on to say more or less exactly what Tim Lagonegro, the petroleum engineer we heard from earlier, said. Lago Negro worked throughout South America, the U.S., and Africa as an engineer for Baker Hughes, an oil field services company. He said that plenty of oil companies were drilling responsibly at the time, that the pollution in Ecuador was really over the top.
2: It was almost like a war, and the environment. That's what it seemed like.
1: Texaco argued that it had cleaned up what it was responsible for. The company also argued that New York, where the suit was filed, had no jurisdiction over what had happened in Ecuador. For almost a decade, the plaintiffs, led by Boniface, fought to keep the suit in New York. That's at least in part because at the time, Ecuador's government was almost entirely in the pocket of the oil companies whose profits were helping the country develop and modernize. In fact, the government even filed amicus briefs backing Texaco in this case. They asked the judge to dismiss the case, saying it would harm Ecuador's own oil industry and its relationship with the U.S. In an internal Texaco memo from 1994, Dr. Rodrigo Perez, one of the company's representatives in Ecuador, is reporting back on a meeting with the president of Ecuador and various ministers and the executives of various oil companies. This seems to be a fairly regular occurrence. The last monthly meeting of the representatives of the oil companies was organized by City Investing and took place on Saturday, September 3rd in the town of Bahia, where President Duran Balen owns a beach house It reads... We flew down in Petro-Ecuador's airplane. Keep in mind, this is 1994, so two years after Texaco has officially left Ecuador, but the company is still pretty cozy with the government there. When he gets to a section titled Ecological Problems, Perez writes, quote, the companies express their deep concern with what is happening to Texaco. President Duran stated that the environmental issue is being brought up by all lending agencies, such as the World Bank, etc., which are conditioning their loans to sound and firm environmental policies. With regard to the Texaco problem, he indicates that they are in the process of being resolved through direct negotiation between the government and Texaco. The minister also said that he had met with the leaders of the indigenous groups who have told him that they are not interested in the lawsuits against Texaco, but rather desire to have direct conversations with the company. The president finally said that he received several letters from ecological organizations from all over the world, asking him to cancel all contracts with foreign oil and mining companies, which he will obviously never do. Okay, so the oil companies are all meeting with the president during his beach vacation and he and the environment minister are telling them, don't worry, we'll sort all of these environmental issues out for you. But also, hey, we're kind of going out on a limb here with these banks and environmental organizations, so don't forget the favor. It's all right there in black and white. This is something that comes up in this case a lot. The corruption of the Ecuadorian government. For years, the plaintiffs said they wouldn't get a fair trial in Ecuador because of it. Then Chevron said they wouldn't get a fair trial. But Chevron also points to agreements the government made with Texaco around this time as both valid and binding, particularly a document in which the Republic of Ecuador signed off on Texaco's cleanup efforts in the country. That agreement was signed in 1998. In various videos defending themselves and in a written statement to us, Chevron is careful with the language they use around this they always say the cleanup was done according to the government's requirements.
0: Before leaving, Texaco spent $40 million and worked with independent environmental experts to clean up its share of well sites. The whole
2: process was overseen and verified by the Ecuadorian government. Texaco spent $40 million cleaning up its agreed upon share of production sites, getting a complete release from the Ecuadorian government and local communities. An independent panel of experts found that Texaco's remediation
3: here
1: had followed Ecuadorian government requirements. It was the Ecuadorian government's cozy relationship with the oil industry that made Bonifaz and the Ecuadorian plaintiffs fight so hard for so long to keep their case in the U.S., especially given that Texaco was an American company. Here's Donziger again.
0: Given that the Ecuador's legal system seemed completely incapable of standing up to the powerful Texaco and then Chevron Corporation, Um, You know, it didn't exactly engender a whole lot of confidence that a lawsuit in Ecuador could be successful, which is exactly why Texaco and then Chevron was so desperate to have the case litigated down in Ecuador. They were so desperate that they agreed as a condition of the removal of the case to Ecuador, they accepted jurisdiction of the Ecuadorian courts as an American company. Very, very significant um, victory for our side. And they also agreed to pay any adverse judgment that might come out of Ecuador um, if they were to lose the case, subject to certain conditions.
1: By this point, Donziger was becoming increasingly involved in the case. It was unusual for an American company to agree to conditions like these, but maybe less so when you consider how friendly the Ecuadorian government had always been to oil companies.
0: They thought they could engineer a dismissal because of their political influence. You know, they saw what we saw, which was, you know, we saw a court system that for decades hadn't issued even one ruling against Texaco, even though the pollution was all over the place. I think they theorized that we would either give up, that is the law firm or lawyers in the U.S. who were financing the case would just quit because it'd be such a hassle to start litigating in a foreign jurisdiction where none of us were lawyers, none of us were members of the bar. We would have to get a local legal team, pay them. The, the inconvenience factor rose significantly, and they knew that.
1: Still, the concessions Texaco had made, and that Chevron accepted too, gave the plaintiffs enough of a reason to keep going.
0: Having gotten those two concessions, which are huge, because oftentimes companies will then, you know, the case will be go- removed to another country, and these big companies like Texaco just won't show up, or they'll show up and say, hey, this has to be dismissed because you lack jurisdiction. In this case, that was not going to be an issue for us. So the upshot is we decided to go continue the case in Ecuador, which began what I call really phase two of this battle.
1: Next time on Drilled... The case kicks off in Ecuador, and the surprising election of a wildly popular socialist president changes the math entirely.
3: Dr. Fernando Rosero for El Pre, El Abogado Leon Rodos for Red, and Rafael Correa, de Alianza País.
1: Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. It's reported and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. My co-reporter on this season is Karen Savage. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. Mixing and mastering by Mark Bush. Additional reporting from Emily Gertz. Additional production help from Sarah Ventry. Original score was composed by B Beeman. Matt Fleming created our beautiful artwork for this season. Our fact checker is Wood Yan. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton and the First Amendment Project. Maggie Taylor is our marketing director. You can find supplemental stories, documents, photos, and interviews on our website at drillednews.com. If you're a Patreon subscriber, thank you. Your membership is paying for this podcast right now. Patreon subscribers get access to an ad-free podcast feed, and we're working on getting you more perks for your membership including early access to episodes for this season. If you don't want to wait a whole week for the next episode, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash drilled. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon.